0: Hello, it's Peter Wright and Kathleen Beauvais in Ontario, Canada, with episode number 82 of The Yakking Show. This is where we talk about life, business and more, and we delve into a few other topics, some of which may be edgy, and today's one might push the envelope a little bit, so if you're sensitive, you're warned. there's nothing offensive i can assure you and we want to bring you tips and ideas for a changing world and as always we have interesting guests today is a returning guest he's really good but it's kathleen's job to introduce him before i hand over to kathleen i must say If you enjoy our show, and if you don't want to miss out on the next exciting episodes, please consider hitting the subscribe button under the screen on whichever platform you happen to be watching it on or listening it to. Enough from me for one day. So hello, Kathleen. Nice to see you back again. And welcome, as always take it away.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much, Peter. Um, It's great to be here as always. And thank you all so much for tuning into our show. We so appreciate you and we love reading your comments. So do please keep those coming. And if anyone out there is interested in becoming a guest on our show, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out to Peter or myself. And if you're enjoying our shows, please don't hesitate to subscribe and that's that button right below the video. And as Peter mentioned, we do have a special guest. In fact, he's back by popular demand. Uh today he's, uh, he appears to be jo- joining <laughs> us from abroad, but um, hello, Barrett. Barrett Maudoy is, is joining us today. Welcome, Barrett.
2: <laughs> Good afternoon, Kathleen and Peter. I'm loving this beach down here in St. Barta.
1: so for our uh, for the sake of our audience I'll just introduce you you are a paralegal and you work with the DC paralegals and you have such a wealth of information uh, Barrett so welcome back and uh, I know we want to delve right into it so um, perhaps just give our audience just a little bit more background about yourself and and what a paralegal is.
2: Yeah, so a uh, paralegal is a licensed member of the law society, similar to a lawyer. The difference between a paralegal and a lawyer is the scope of practice. Uh, paralegals have a reduced scope of practice in terms of their advocacy work. So we can't handle all legal matters. Um, there's a specific range of things that we're allowed to do, but uh, one of the things that um I involve myself in particular is provincial offenses, which is the sort of avenue that we're going to be talking about today. That's my, my bread and butter and my second love after my wife.
1: <laughs> Wonderful.
2: So,
0: <clears throat> Kathleen, I think you want to ask uh, Barrett something about the latest changes to the restrictions we're living under.
1: Well, that's right. I mean, it's... <sighs> Gosh, this world has been changing, hasn't it? Um, you know, Barrett, with all these new lockdowns, can you, can you tell our audience a little bit more about what that entails? What does it mean exactly? For so, so many people are confused by it.
2: Yeah, I don't blame them. I was confused right up until 10 o'clock last night when I got my hands on the <laughs> draft of the regulation to actually see what was going on here. Uh, the announcement came out around uh, Tuesday, I think, and um, they were pretty vague on the details. But the sort of centerpiece of this was that the was the stay-at-home order, right? Mm-hmm. And um, that regulation finally came out around sometime last night. And uh, you know, with all the talk that's been going on, like with curfews and that type of thing in Quebec, which is just you know, turned into a situation all on its own. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people were really worried about what this stay-at-home order would mean for themselves and in their practical day-to-day lives. Uh, As far as I can read into it, after looking at the regulation, it seems that the idea here is just to promote more substantial compliance and sort of restrict the non-essential trips that uh, may have, been occurring more frequently before the second state of emergency was declared and what they're trying to do it seems is to make sure that in any cases where an employer may be able to have an employee work from home but perhaps just um, you know wasn't willing to put the resources forward they're trying to push them a little bit harder to get that done um, there's some conversation about what an essential service is or what an essential trip is, right? And there's mm-hmm. that's not defined anywhere in the law. And I think I've even mentioned some time in the past too that really a lot of this definition in terms of essential is going to come down to court cases, right? Mm-hmm. People are going to get issued tickets and they're going to say, no, this is, this is wrong. I shouldn't be... Um, you know, find in a free and democratic country, or even put at risk of imprisonment for, uh, you know, going to help a friend move or something like that, right? Well,
1: that's the and other question I was going to ask. Like, is it even legal?
2: Well, and you know, the the question of what's legal or not really, it's it's obviously one that I deal with every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, what a lot of legal representatives rely on, though, is primarily what the statute says right because the statute has the ability to alter any common law rule that may have existed beforehand the the issue is that even in a situation where there is a statute created and even if the statute itself acknowledges that it is an infringement on an individual's charter rights the the government, or the prosecution in this case, is going to be put under the onus or proof to show basically that the infringement was minimal, that it was rationally connected to the goal, and that the reason that the law was put in place was a substantial enough concern. Now, I think uh, maybe even in one of the previous episodes, we might have briefly gone over those criteria or what are embedded in the common law is the Oakes test, right? And that's a Section 1 analysis under the Charter, because Charter rights aren't absolute, they aren't um, inalienable or anything like that. They are subject to a certain amount of control by the government when it's deemed appropriate, right? So a good example of this may be um, search and seizure, right? There's lots of common law about search and seizure, and uh, those are, you're talking about Section 8 Charter rights at that point, right? Well, if an officer pulls you over for a routine traffic stop on a ride program, uh, you know, if you have some alcohol or an empty alcohol bottle sitting in open view in the front of the car, well that gives them reasonable and probable grounds to conduct a search of the vehicle, right, or possibly even arrest you at that point ask you to take a breathalyzer. And I think most people would agree that if, you know, you're driving around with an empty, you know, two or three empty bottles rolling around in the passenger seat, that, yeah, that's probably something that the police should be looking into, right? But what would be unacceptable in those circumstances is if the police officer turned around and said, well, you know what, Um, I think just because I see these uh, bottles rolling around, or maybe there isn't that factor in this circumstance. They pull you over in a ride program and they say, well, you know what, I, I think you were texting while driving, so open your phone up and show me the last time you sent a text message. That would be an intrusion upon the person's mm-hmm. privacy that would I would expect be considered unacceptable in those circumstances the same thing they can't turn around and ask you to you know open your trunk and do all this other kind of stuff either unless they have a reason to think that you know you're driving around with 24 kilos of cocaine in the trunk and that's pretty high bar to meet right, right. yeah yeah and I know Peter has
1: a, a, a great question coming up Peter I just want to jump in because it'll be a segue to yours um, sure. so right now under these conditions under the lockdown conditions if I decided because I can go out and get some fresh air, I can go for a walk. But what if I decided to go for a drive? Just just to change a change of scenery and I got pulled over. Can they I mean can I be asked where am I going and and if I'm just saying I'm out for a drive? Is that <laughs> Could I be so for that? right? And I think
2: that's a primary concern for a lot of people right now, right? I mean, are the police going to be setting up roadblocks at major mm-hmm. highways? Like, are our are, are mobility rights going to be severely restricted to the point that we're almost living in a police state and we're going to have to get, you know, letters from employers in order to go to and from work and all this stuff? I personally don't see that happening. Um, primarily because we just don't have the resources to implement a regiment like that in order to have it um, sustainable. But uh, I actually read an article earlier today uh, that was put out in the media and the police departments don't seem to be particularly interested in pursuing the um, stay at home order with an avenue of routine traffic stops or anything like that because it, you know, Essential is subjective, right? I was talking um, with some people about this before. I mean, if I was a smoker, then I need to go buy cigarettes, right? That's an essential thing that I need because Mm -hmm. I have an addiction. But, you know, obviously to a non-smoker, that trip to the corner store is not an essential service to them, right? Mm -hmm. So right there, you already have a subjective splitting. What I'm a little more interested in is the question of let's say i'm a non-smoker but i'm you know bored out of my mind because i've been locked at home and i decide to take a walk to go to the corner store to buy a pack of cigars even though i'm not a smoker what's going to happen there right and that's
0: right yeah 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 so i i've got a there's, there's a really burning mm-hmm. one i want it or two burning ones we want to ask you but a quick one is is this latest regulation more about window dressing and to appease the medical political bureaucrats and the small percentage of the population that absolutely panicking rather than to have any practical purposes.
2: Well and right there I think you know you've you've kind of hit the nail on the head Peter there's been a lot of push against the government to create stricter measures and everything and I think part of the problem is that Uh, in this time period, the law is being used as a political tool to increase the prospect of um, being re-elected, right? Because Uh, the government wants to be put in the position of being the one accused of not doing anything to address the the coronavirus pandemic, right? But on the other hand, you know, they don't also want to be accused by the different end of the population as being too draconian with their measures either. Right? So what sure. the peace government right now is trying to do is keep everyone happy, but unfortunately we know that's just not Impossible. going to-
0: To put it in perspective, on on the world uh, coronavirus tracking website, which I believe contains reputable information, as of yesterday morning, Canada was reported to have 843 serious or critical cases, right, 843 in 38 million. So, yeah, that's why I think it's more critical than Than practical. Anyway, the question I really want to ask you is though, is we've seen a number of MPPs and other senior government officials, and I heard this morning the uh, senior executive from a London hospital all fired, losing their jobs for traveling outside the country over the Christmas period. And while it might be hypocritical if they support the government's policies, it's not illegal. So my question is does this constitute an unfair labor practice, and have they got recourse? Because the guy in the hospital guy is already bringing a case for four million, I think it is against the hospital. So what's the legal standpoint here,
2: Barrett? Well, I mean, this, this, this is a serious problem, right? Because on the one hand, you have um, the, these publicly paid people who are out there every day telling people not to do all these types of things, <laughs> telling people that they need to make sacrifices and everything. And then on the other hand, you have those same individuals just carrying on with their lives as normal, right? Um, the the issue there, at least from a social perspective, is that that it's it's unpalatable to people, right? They don't want to see their politicians and stuff who've been telling them for the past almost a year now to stay at home and stop the spread and, you know, encouraging people to make all these kinds of sacrifices, especially over the Christmas holidays. Yep. Um, But on the other hand, you know, you're right. They haven't actually done anything illegal. And even at the stay at home order, there's a special provision in there currently that allows you to be out uh, to go to an airport or a bus station to leave out of province. Right. So there's nothing illegal about this. Um, And that's going to be a tough thing for them to be. Now, a lot of those, uh, especially the CEOs and that type of thing, they're going to have golden parachute clauses in their employment (laughs) contracts that say like, you know, if for whatever reason, we can't continue this um, employment relationship. Uh, we'll pay you a bunch of money to dispense of all potential claims that might relate to employment law, right? And that's just something that they do to sort of sure. uh, make the transition for one CEO to another job a little bit easier. It'd be pr- kind of nice if everyone was afforded those
1: <laughs> yeah. contracts,
2: but that's an entirely different topic altogether. Um, and uh, I think though that really there is potentially a legitimate claim now what's happening though with there's a little bit of a difference in the private sector and the public sector oh, right what's with, the, with the public sector is you have a lot of people resigning right and and i'll put a pin in that one for a moment because there's a specific instance that i'm kind of thinking of i think we're going to talk about that in a moment but the where someone is actually fired for breaching this uh these policies or a company policy or something like that uh but there isn't actually any like kind of corporate bylaw or any legal regulation preventing them from engaging in that behavior mm-hmm. it is possible mm-hmm. that there's a wrongful dismissal claim in there somewhere
0: good interesting
1: and um Kathleen, you- over to you you could probably uh, address this better than I can, but I seem to think there was a Cambridge, Ontario MPP recently that um, had what seems to be unfair treatment uh, because she opposed Premier. Um, can you speak to that, Barrett?
2: Yeah, so that's that's what's happening in, in the public sector with uh, in relation to uh, the previous question. What's... Just to kind of bring everyone up to speed, the Cambridge MPP, when um, she, when the vote for Bill 184, which was later to become the Reopening Ontario Act, came up in the legislature, she actually voted against it. And she had some legitimate concerns that were being brought forward. But because she wasn't towing the party line, she effectively got ejected from the PC party altogether. Now she's still an elected official, but an independent as opposed to being part of the PC party. And then, you know, so you have that situation where someone is basically, the, the party isn't necessarily the employer, but for <laughs> the purposes of our discussion here, it's a, it's a good corollary, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have there, this employer that basically says, look, you're fired for, for not um, conforming to what our vision of this thing is, right? which to me is completely outrageous because the whole purpose of publicly elected officials is that they're able to vote their conscience Mm -hmm. on a particular bill that passes through parliament, regardless of whether or not it's the official party line or not. Right. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. work for the constituents. Right. So that, that situation actually infuriated me. And I was a little upset that we weren't talking about it more because there's actually some underlying issues in there. I mean, you can take that issue and branch out into, you know, how female politicians even more generally are treated as opposed to their male counterparts in mm-hmm. politics, right? Mm-hmm. I know there was a little bit of discussion about that in the news before um, this uh, uh, the pandemic overtook the news cycle. Then on the other hand, you know, you have um, someone like Rod Phillips who holds a high position in the cabinet, a high position in the cabinet mm-hmm. and it you know comes back from this trip and is more or less kind of you know given a finger wag and then told you got two options i mean it's it's untenable that we keep you on in this high profile cabinet position now so you know i can either fire you or you can quit
1: yeah. and you're yeah,
2: still a member of the party so my question there is you know where's the equitable treatment yeah,
1: right.
0: time is marching on. Kathleen's got a burning a burning one for you. Got some interference. somewhere.
1: Well, a little bit of interference, but hopefully it uh, doesn't bother the audio too much. Yes, I have another question for you, Barrett. I know that uh, getting back to the police force, um, they must be in a very difficult position right now. And I know that, you know, I have a lot of respect for our police force. Lord knows we need them. But there are several officers that have launched a, a court case against the government um, and you know, they're confused too. I'm sure they are because they're they're getting a lot of pushback from a lot of citizens saying that they're not upholding their constitutional rights. Can you address that?
2: Yeah, and you know, this uh, is, it's a very complicated issue, and I would actually commend those officers for bringing that to light. Mm-hmm. Um, they, I think that most officers, they they really, when they get into the the profession, mm-hmm. um, they do have a deeply ingrained belief in the fact that we are a free and democratic country,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and they're really more concerned with taking care of behaviors that would be considered criminal, right? Part of the issue with a lot of these regulations and stuff that are coming out and will be prosecuted under the Provincial Offences Act in the Ontario Court of Justice is that they're not criminal behaviors, right? There are some degrees of liability and stuff, but the, the actual harm that's being created on an individual to individual basis especially if that person is proven later on at no time to have even been infected or passing the infection around. I mean, it's, it does seem on its face completely unjust. And, you know, I think the other issue is too, um, in terms of enforcement and what the police officers are having problems with is that uh, you have people who have these opinions about how things should be and you know the officers are the ones on the front lines right they have to deal and interact with the public all the time and every once in a while you get these volatile individuals who you know maybe not necessarily put the officers at risk but nobody wants to have somebody standing there in their face screaming at them about their rights and stuff like that and to be perfectly honest a lot of those people don't fully understand their own rights either right this goes back to a misunderstanding of what the what the charter really means and how it's applied in certain situations so um absolutely those officers are being put in a really tough position and I can absolutely see the point of view that they would feel that they shouldn't really be responsible for managing these types of situations Mm -hmm. on the enforcement Mm -hmm. end because it's not criminal behavior and it's not really what they signed up for when they joined the police force right Mm -hmm. of course on the other hand you also then have the the other set of police officers who say look the job is the job and we're here to do the job and you know we don't ask questions about it right Mm -hmm. so and and that's an interesting aspect to this right you're what you'll come to find is when you look at sort of the beliefs within the population and then you know you look at the beliefs within the police forces themselves you will probably start to find that there is a good representation in terms of political beliefs as a subset within the police force themselves right so because those police officers are launching that court action what you're seeing is is actually um, a recognition among a larger subset of people who have authority to speak on that particular matter, bringing these issues forward. And, and they absolutely should, because I, my personal opinion is that the law should not be used in this way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this, this wasn't really the intention. And, you know, you can consider it maybe a little bit more of a... A libertarian type of point of view. Not that I ascribe to that particular political philosophy at all, really, but I I do have, you know, probably a little bit more of a conservative leaning when it comes to that, in the sense that I don't think the government should be governing the aspects of everyone's life. I don't think the government should have absolute say over, you know, how a business runs its business save for obvious things that are wrong, like fraud or, or misrepresentation or, you know, causing some kind of harm to the public, right? Yeah. So that's kind of where I am on that spectrum. And, um, you know, I, I think that I'm pretty close to where those officers are saying that, no, this is a little bit of an overstep and this is not really what we signed up for.
0: Absolutely, I'm, I'm, watching, I'm watching our time. I don't know what's going on with that sound, but uh, let's battle through. <clears throat> there's, there's, I read on a website, and unfortunately, I went back to try and find it, and I cannot for the life of me find it. But it's something that's been going through my mind for since we spoke before, in fact, for weeks, and that I believe some of the world leaders, I won't name names, but many of the world leaders, by imposing these restrictions for a disease that is in most countries, no worse than a bad flu season, are actually guilty of crimes against humanity. So I read a report the other day that said a leading, a, a leader of a major European country is having a case against him brought in the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Now, I wish I could find the specific reference and I, I will find it, but I can't find it at the moment. Because the lockdowns are causing so much, so many deaths, harm, misery, starvation, way in excess of what the disease itself is causing. And they point to cases like Sweden, uh, most African countries, and the state of Florida, where there's virtually no lockdowns and the death rate per 100,000 is lower than in most of the other countries and states where there are lockdowns. So, has that case got
2: merit? Um... I can see potentially where, when you're looking at crimes against humanity and this kind of stuff, a lot of times those issues are tied to uh, protected human rights ground. So, uh, just the fact that, you know, there is a large set of the population, a possible defense to that is that it wasn't targeting a particular ethnic group or anything. So it wasn't like a form of, of genocide or anything like that, right? Um, that's, that's a pretty... Uh, I guess it's a bit of a loaded question. The fact that the case got into the courts in the first place and is being reviewed indicates that there is some merit to looking at those issues, right? Um, whether or not the... It's going to result in an outcome, but there's an interesting kind of aspect of that even beyond like the discussion of protected grounds and, and whether or not there's merit to the case. And it's, it's dealing in human rights, and this sort of goes back to the, uh, you know, the politicians uh, all off jet setting in this kind of thing, is um, just how um, differently these rules and everything are affecting people across the socioeconomic spectrum, right? Because, you know, you you have a certain percentage of the population who says, you know what, it's it's Canada, we're in lockdown, it's cold here, I'm miserable, uh, you know, I've been working all year, I'm just going to go buy a plane ticket and, and go off somewhere and get, get away from it for a little while, right? And then you have an entire the majority of the population who just that's not a feasible option to them right and Absolutely. so and then you're you're talking too about um issues like starvation and mental health and everything and it's a pretty well studied fact that uh you know mental health tends to be lower in um mm-hmm. in people of lower socioeconomic class they experience more uh negative health outcomes when they experience critical illness and this type of thing And uh, I would actually say that I think it might be time that we really take a step back and look at our human rights legislations and start to think about how socioeconomic class needs to be put in there as a protected ground. Mm
1: -hmm. Because,
2: Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's lots of people talking about how internet should be a human right and, you know, housing should be a human right now technically is, and I think that when people say those types of things, they may not fully understand what a human right is, right? It's not that you get something, it's that you are yep. not allowed to experience discrimination on based on a protected ground, right? So was, yep. But at the same time, um, I think that if we were to include socio-economic status as a protected ground, it might provoke people to start looking at things in a way, and especially policymakers, uh, to start looking um, for ways to ensure that society is more equitable, which is actually what the law is supposed to be meant for.
0: Right? Be meant for. That's right. Yeah. We're, we're out of time, Bert. So um, how can people contact you?
2: Uh, my number is 647-525-6829, and uh, my email address is barrett.boldway at gmail.com.
0: Excellent. Well, that's we could go on and on for hours. There's so many uh, facets of this whole situation we're in right now that uh, leads to endless discussion and, and unfortunately, huge um, hostility and divisiveness or division amongst the wow, I've never experienced it as much as I'm seeing now before. And, uh, you know, it's so sad. I've just been watching a documentary on um, Britain during, it's called the wartime farmer and how the whole country virtually pulled together and the conditions they worked under to feed the nation, you know, and and I compare it to the attitudes now of people snitching on neighbors. And I think, wow, what have we come to? Anyway, enough babbling from me. Over to Kathleen. <laughs> Thanks from me, Barrett.
1: Yes. um, Thank you so much, Barrett, for joining us. And we hope to have you again on the show because as uh, our audience, by popular demand, we had you back. So we'll have you back again soon, we hope. So thank you. And thank you all so very much for tuning into our show. We so appreciate you. And if anyone out there is interested in becoming a guest on our show, please don't hesitate to reach out to either Peter or myself. So until next time, do take care. Bye-bye.